hello, how are we? How are we getting on? You are very welcome to the very first episode of a new podcast called What About News? That is brought to you by yours truly, Catherine Gallagher. And it is an, a news podcast that is going to be centred around what it says on the tin about news. Over the foreseeable future, we will be taking a look at news that happens at home in Ireland as well as abroad, but with a focus on politics and current affairs. And essentially, news that you hear about on the news, news that might go under the radar, and news that might get lost in translation with information overload, essentially, with, the, with, the, with what social media can bring and my aim here is to make news as engaging as possible to make it easy to understand and to make you possibly want to keep a closer eye on what is happening yourself now uh, not with every episode I will do this but I feel it's necessary as this is coming from very humble beginnings of a one-woman band on this uh, on this podcast just to give you a little bit of background as to who you are listening to, essentially. Now, I, I want to make it very clear that this podcast isn't about me, it's about news. Who am I? My name is Catherine Gallagher and I am a student at Dublin City University and I am in my final year studying journalism at an undergraduate level and um, I'm very interested in broadcasting and radio. Now, if you haven't heard, podcasts are all the rage, so I very much want to to join join that parade, join that bus, and I I have I have a passion for making news as interesting and engaging as possible. Like I already said, and I I think that um I think it's very hard to ignore the news myself, but um I understand that there are people who who don't follow it as closely as I do. Now, having said all that, we will today be taking a look at Brexit and also the pretty much the challenges facing the HSC over, over the next few months or the winter period, but we will start first with Brexit. Now, today is the 9th of December. It is two days before or, or under 48 hours essentially before this crucial House of Commons vote go goes ahead. Um, so I feel I'm slightly limited to kind of what I can say because I feel there there will be more that needs to be said and will be said after this vote on the 11th of December. But with 110 days to go before Brexit, potentially if more than likely leaves the European Union, it's very hard to ignore it on the first initial episode of What About News. Um, so what I want to do is, and I hear this is my aim again, to backtrack and give a bit of explainer and not give you necessarily the latest, but to build up to giving you the latest, but also giving you a, a, an explainer. So I want to backtrack a little bit to the 25th of November of this year, where 27 EU leaders met and agreed at a summit in Brussels to essentially a deal on the UK's divorce from the EU. Now this was a 500 page deal and it only took 37 minutes to agree to it, believe it or not. So the European Council and and the, the 27 um, other EU member state leaders agreed to this 500 page deal 
and it covered financial matters, citizens' rights, provision, provisions to keep open Britain's border with Ireland and arrangements for a 21-month post-Brexit transition phase. I mentioned the border there and it includes specific provisions in a 26-page document about the future relationship with Northern Ireland. Um, it has been said by Theresa May, by our very own Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney, Simon Coveney, I should say, that this is the only deal. This is where the book stops, that we are not going to get another deal. And she told reporters in the wake of this, if people think that there's somehow another negotiation to be done, that is not the case. And Jean-Claude Juncker, who was the president of the European Commission, essentially said the same. Theresa May's biggest challenge yet is more closer to home than ever. Um, On the 11th of December, uh, as I said, which is in two days' time, the crucial vote in the House of Commons will be put forward to her government in opposition. Now, in case you haven't heard, it, it is likely that this will not go through, that she will not get a majority support on this. The biggest challenge for Theresa May is now on her own doorstep because the way it's looking at the moment is that she is unlikely uh, to get support, to get a majority vote on, on support of that deal that she herself and other EU leaders have said that this is where the book stops and there's no other deal after this. Now Sinn Féin over the weekend have reiterated their abstentionist policy. They actually have seven seats in Westminster um, which they do not take, they do, they do not sit. Uh, they have been called upon to take their seats to cast their vote, yet they refuse to do so. Now this trend, or this this stance by Sinn Féin, was something that was set out by Countess Markovic back, way, way back when, um, when she was the first female MP to be elected to Westminster. Now she took up this abstentionist policy, and it is the policy that has been Within within Sinn Féin ever since, looking at this vote and and the potential outcomes, and I'm going to go through six potential outcomes here that that could happen. Uh, One of them is that the vote could be postponed. A number of ministers have urged May already to call off Tuesday evening's vote. And this is a view echoed by the chairman of the committee, representing almost 2,000 committee backbenchers. Now, for Theresa May to be able to do this, this would not be an easy task, yet it is a potential outcome. The second one is that the deal is approved, although this is unlikely, um, and she doesn't, as well as that, she doesn't have the support of the DUP. For anyone that doesn't know, the DUP is a unionist party, and by what I mean that they helped prop up the government. The government in... in um, the government in Westminster does not have enough numbers to make up a majority and if you, let's say, pass, put forward a bill or a budget and you cannot get uh, a vote in, in support, a majority vote of support for what you are putting forward, essentially uh, it's even happened in Irish politics that the that government falls apart and there there is an election. Given the fact that the DUP are are, are not going to back this deal, it, it makes the task at hand a lot more challenging. However, the DUP said they would support government in a vote of no confidence if the deal is rejected, but if it passes, the confidence and supply agreement will go out the window. So there's that. 
The next one is that there is a slim loss, and by a slim loss I mean 50 or less. Uh, for such uh, a substantial piece of legislation, for such an essential piece of legislation, 500 page document, the Theresa May could view a 50, 50 vote or less loss as almost a victory. Now she lost by 50 votes or less. There is a chance that she could try and convince a couple dozen um, MPs and there could be a few rebel rebels and Labour as well um, that, that could end up supporting her in the end, although this slim loss con and convincing MPs in the end is quite a hypothetical thing as well as the deal being approved in the first place. Now the next the next one and, and probably the, the obvious one on the tips of people's tongues at the moment is a calamitous defeat. Over 100 MPs have indicated that they will go against the deal, that they will not support it. If she refuses to leave off her own accord, she could face a vote of no confidence. And where do you reel back from a vote of no confidence if you are found to have ha have no confidence from your par parliament? Uh, she has already been found in contempt of parliament uh, recently by, by the House of Commons because... Um, Opposition opposition parties, and it was the Labour Party really that instigated this, was due to the fact that the full legal advice that the government would have received in relation to this this deal I'm talking about that was agreed in in um, in Brussels on the 25th of November, that they wanted the the document the document the text in full of the legal advice that they uh, received. Now Theresa May said at the time that a partial text or a summary would be provided if this was not enough. Um, now as, as a news consumer looking at this you could say well is this the opposition just making noise for the sake of making it? And during this time from what I could see there was little to no other alternatives uh, provided when this contempt of parliament chat was happening. Now there have been calls for a Norway plus model of going about things but I think that is something that we will talk about in the next podcast. Um, the next podcast pretty much hinges a lot on the vote on Tuesday if it goes ahead and what that vote will be. So we will come back to Norway plus at another time. Now another thing uh, that that could be and the second last thing I have to talk about on this is there could be a renegotiation of the deal. Although with with many of the things I have outlined already, a, a lot of these potential outcomes are actually would not be straightforward to to happen. So um, if the vote is postponed, that would not be that would not be easy to 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 bring about. Um, the deal is approved. That's difficult because it's looking unlikely. A calamitous defeat. Um, you could say that's not straightforward because Theresa May has not displayed qualities or signs of, of stepping down or, or quitting. Then there's this renegotiation. Um, now EU leaders have already made it quite clear that chapter and verse is closed on reaching another deal. And if you were to ask me, I would say I, I think Europe, I think EU leaders, I think... Um, have what is called a, a, bre a Brexit fatigue and, and just want to kind of get the, the wheel in motion if there's any wheel to go by. Um, 
that's what I would say. The most likely grounds for uh, renegotiation to come about was if the EU are facing a brand new Prime Minister, if there is an election. If there is an election in the next very immediate future and they are faced with a new Prime Minister that has the threat of a no-deal Brexit uh, hanging over them, they could waver this. They could waver what they said, that, that they would not go back to the table However, these I, I have to say that these are all very much hypothetical situations and in in the kind of the eve or the eve eve of this uh, House of Commons vote, that's all we can really do. The last one is uh, a second referendum. Now in Irish politics, we are not a stranger to this. We did this with the Lisbon Treaty before. This would happen if, if May's deal of treason, May's deal is rejected. If the EU refuses to renegotiate it, the Norway Plus uh, can't win a majority. The Norway Plus model, um, MPs will then face a choice between leaving the EU without a deal. And, and th that, that actually isn't something that anyone wants, and that will be grounds for calling a referendum. And there is already a clear majority in the House of Commons that a no-deal no deal Brexit is, is not a possibility and that would be grounds for calling a second referendum and, and, and all of what I said just there would make it more likely to happen. Br the, the British Labour Party said that if May's deal is defeated it will seek a general election themselves and if that fails they will consider the option of a public vote which is essentially a referendum. Those are the potential outcomes after Tuesday but as I said before this is all very much hypothetical chatter here and but as I said between now and essentially Tuesday night next in two days time it's everything is very much up in the air and, and, and no one really knows what's going to happen until this vote happens or if it doesn't happen um, so until then I, I am limited to what I can say although I think it was important to to explain to you that that deal from the 25th of November because unless you're following these things quite closely um it it, it makes it makes this vote a lot of people might not know some 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 listeners might not be aware of what this this vote on Tuesday means so i hope that uh, you are somewhat more informed on what's happening Tishukli over Adker was speaking on the late late show on Friday night on the 7th of December and he spoke about a range of things including uh, the housing the housing crisis um, and, and help and a bit about his own background but one of the things that jumped out at me and it jumped out at a lot of people on social media and there were headlines about it even within minutes of him saying it what he essentially said was that the HSE as it stands now the operation how it operates is is not fit for purpose. Now today I this e today I kind of want to bring to you a few stories about why this this might be the case and kind of paint a picture of the challenges facing the HSC over the winter period. I just want to backtrack a little bit again to about the mid to the end of October. Now around this time Stephen Donnelly, who was a spokesperson for Fianna Fáil on health, released quite damning uh, figures in relation to the HSC in the Dáil, and one of them 
was that nearly 70,000 patients at the time had been removed from outpatient to waiting lists uh, this year up until then without an initial consultation. And the figures were obtained by Donnelly from GPs um, and it revealed that 69,836 patients were cut from waiting lists. Now, why did this happen? Now, it was meant to be as part of a validation exercise where staff inquired that they were ready, willing, suitable and available to attend their appointment. The National Treatment Purchase Fund established a centralised unit for validating hospital waiting lists in September of this year and Minister for Health Simon Harris said this was to set out a standardised approach to the process. I wrote an article on this at the time for the College View, which is DCU's student newspaper, and Donnelly spoke to me on the efficacy of the validation process and he said it is always important that list numbers are accurate invariably there are there are some patients on waiting lists that shouldn't be there however what the recent stats show us is that the current approach to patient care by the government is clearly wrong um the hardest hit was uh, unquote he stopped speaking there the South South the South South West Hospital Group was the hardest hit and this includes the likes of Cork University Hospital, University Hospital Kerry and Lourdes Orthopaedic Hospital Kilcreen and they had the largest numbers of names removed off their list by over twenty two thousand. I asked Donnelly at the time of writing the article, was there any particular reason why this hospital group was hit the hardest? And he said that the government failed to provide him with the details as to why there was such a, a number of a high number of patients removed from there. Now, just just to put this, so just to put this um, seventy thousand uh, names taken off lists in perspective, because it accounts for more than ten percent of the overall number of five hundred thousand names um, that were on lists. So ten percent of names on lists were removed. This validation to, to this validation process to simplify it down essentially means that admin staff clerical staff um this essentially means that admin staff uh clerical staff send letters to more than likely the, the GP of the patient. GPs have said that they're absolutely inundated with, with paperwork and letters and that is simply not not possible to to to, to meet the demand and because of that um, patients pa patients get get taken off and, I, and I've also I've also uh, heard from patients saying that they have they have sent back they have confirmed that they are able to attend and they have been taken off the list anyway in a statement from the National Association of General Practitioners they said that the validation system was uh, a current guys in a national disgrace and they say this will be the next inevitable scandal of our health service and they say that there is no logical reason for this form of validation and it just creates more barriers and bureaucracy in terms of access to care for the most vulnerable in society they propose that the HSC should directly make contact with patients and if a patient fails to attend three appointments at a hospital that then there will be then grounds to remove them from a list and to be notified in the event of that happening.
Now, with this in mind, it also transpires that almost 10,000 people over the age of 75 were left on trolleys for at least 24 hours between January and August of this year. These figures were again shared by Stephen Donnelly and again the South Southwest Hospital Group consistently had the highest number of over 75s on trolleys compared to other hospital groups. Now as I said before, the South Southwest Hospital Group had the highest numbers of names removed off their outpatient waiting lists. The month that was hardest hit was January where 1,955 people were waiting on trolleys recently. The HSC have published their, their winter plan and this is a 30 million euro plan uh, that, that, that was only published recently and it's also important to note that these plans were not submitted to the, to the Department of Health for approval until the start of November. Now, Simon Harris and even Leo Radker speaking on the Late Late Show over the weekend was asked about this and they seem to be of the opinion and they seem to say that uh, this has little bearing on on how things will happen that, that this plan was not submitted until the start of November. We have around 240 more beds in comparison to last year currently. However, around 150 beds are now closed. And this is what you will not hear the politicians saying. We have a, a number of beds closed now due to cost control and infection control. And that is something that you, you will not hear. And while we might have more beds, the HSC are operating, operating with less staff than this time last year. Now, included in this plan, a p the, par the private sector is set to be contracted to provide x-rays and other tests to provide step-down step down beds for patients recovering from surgery. Clinics will be established in the community to get older people and other at-risk groups winter ready, for example, the provision of the flu vaccine. The National Treatment Purchase Fund, which is the same which is the same body that set up the validation process, has been asked to access extra diagnostic staff people get out of hospital more quickly. I've heard Simon Harris speak about this on the radio. He said that often uh, the delay for patients staying in hospital is because there is a d delay to reach diagnosis and often this can happen over a weekend, holidays or a bank holiday. And he believes that providing diagnostics uh, quicker will help people to get out of hospital and home um, at an earlier stage. And there will also be an extension of opening, opening hours of primary care units. Leo Radker recently came under fire for comments that he made in relation to staff over the winter period and what he said could be taken as that he that he he looked at the rosters, he looked at, at holidays and and he said that we we essentially still need we need high high numbers of staff and consultants working over the winter period. Bearing this in mind, he he did attempt to to clear this up on, on Friday evening. Hospital consultants have actually indeed threatened a move towards taking industrial action in, in the new year if an equal rate of pay is not restored.
Results from a recent survey by the IMO found that 63% of respondents said they would engage in industrial action. Doctors that have been employed since 2012 say that there is a 30% gap in the rate of pay that they get in comparison to their more senior colleagues for doing the same amount of work. And in 2012, the then government introduced a two-tier pay system for hospital consultants hired before the 1st of October of that year. This results in some consultants earning up to 55,000 a year less than some of their colleagues. The Irish Medical Organisation, I should have said, the IMO, which is the represent, which is the representative body for doctors in Ireland, has said that the two-tier pay system is undermining morale among medical professionals and preventing consultants, consultant posts from being filled. And according to the IMO, they say that there are up to 500 vacant consultant posts that are currently unfilled in hospitals across the country and this is what they call a recruitment and retention crisis. Earlier on a a few weeks ago the Irish Nurses and Midwives organisation began to ballot its members for industrial action in relation to issues over understaffing in the health service. Now as well as this I'm not sure if you've noticed but there there has been quite a big um, movement in recent times for student nurses and um, a lot of this has been instigated by, by these few student nurses. Now there was a recent government proposal on pay which the union said would not have affected most nurses and midwives. It was rejected by 94% of its members within the ju- within the last month. Now if the vote for industrial action goes ahead, nurses and midwives will stop work for 24 hours providing only essential life-preserving care and emergency response teams for theatre and emergency departments so between consultants and nurses we we don't have we don't have any happy camps and on top of things that are happening now with the Irish maternity hospital and the logistics of how abortion care is going to be carried out in the new year these are some of the challenges facing the HSC as well as as, as, as well as trolley weights that don't appear to be ceasing anytime soon. Now that is all from me for this evening. It's, it's evening at the time of recording this. I hope you, you, you enjoyed what, what, you, what you heard today in this podcast on the very first episode. And as I said, this is very much humble beginnings. Um, as I said, it is a one-woman band, uh, but I do hope that as time goes on, potentially in the new year that it will be a more collaborative process with with guest speakers coming on and if you yourself are listening and you have an interest possibly in coming on in the near future or at any stage please feel free to contact me I will have a social media and a designated email set up um, and the, the details for that will be in the description below hopefully you can tune in again next week to hear more news from home and abroad and news that affects you. This has been Catherine Gallagher. Thank you for listening to the What About News podcast. Goodbye.